You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm recording this on Saturday, August 29th, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, I'm speaking to two social scientists in the U.S. who study global health with the focus on Russia and Eurasia to get their take on Sputnik V, or maybe it's Sputnik V, the coronavirus vaccine Moscow has approved for general distribution beginning in October making it the first widely available immunization against COVID-19 in the world. Side note, the vaccine's creators haven't actually explained publicly, but it's possible that the letter V refers to the word vaccine or vector, or perhaps it signifies the Roman numeral for five in a reference to the adenovirus serotype 5, which the vaccine uses as a vector to deliver the SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 the coronavirus genetic material into patients. Anyway, if you've read anything about the product, you'll know that it's rolling out to the public just as phase three trials begin, meaning that researchers still have no idea how effective the vaccine actually is. So far, the scientists developing Sputnik vaccine say they've combined phase one and phase two testing and confirmed its safety and immunogenicity, meaning that they have established that it provokes an immune response in those who receive it. It's not until phase three, however, when the vaccine is compared to a placebo, that researchers can find out if the vaccine actually protects against coronavirus infection. Sputnik V's, or Sputnik V's phase three, will include 40,000 volunteers in a randomized, double-blind study, meaning that neither the volunteers nor the medical workers observing them will know who received the real vaccine and who was given a placebo. The Gamalea Research Institute, which developed this vaccine, says it hopes to manufacture 3 to 5 million doses annually once production is up and running, and a handful of other Russian biotech companies will be manufacturing Sputnik vaccine as well. Russia says it's received orders for a billion doses around the world. Suspiciously, and unlike most scientists in other countries working on a coronavirus vaccine, the Gamalea Research Institute has yet to publish any trial results in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Despite promises from the researchers, they haven't shared any details about their vaccine tests with the global expert community. There's pretty much nobody outside Russia who's saying that this seems like a reasonable risk to take. That's Judith Twigg, a political science professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University who studies healthcare in Russia and Eurasia and human development and public sector management. I asked her if rolling the Sputnik vaccine out to the general public before phase three trials is as reckless as it sounds. Maybe the dire circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic justify taking these risks? Granting what we call emergency use authorization for a vaccine or any drug is a pretty high bar. It's certainly a thing that's been done by many governments in many circumstances. But that bar is particularly high for vaccines because you're giving vaccines to already healthy people. So you really have uh, quite a high threshold to overcome here, and there's no indication that Russia has done that. I mean, nobody else is doing this kind of emergency youth authorization at this point, and there's no reason to believe that the Russian science is anywhere ahead, any of the science of any of the vaccine candidates in 
US, UK, China. In fact, if you look at the WHO vaccine candidates list, you know, Russia doesn't appear in the couple of dozen top viable candidates that WHO lists. Because I know that the, the researchers claimed that they had a head start on this because they were working on a mares vaccine. And I guess they were also working on other vaccines that they say that they say gave them kind of a leg up on this. Is that, is that does that track at all? Is that a reasonable claim? Right. So they're using an adenovirus platform. Adenovirus has caused the common cold and and, and it's, it's, you know, a clever formulation. It's a two-dose vaccine, and it actually uses two different adenovirus platforms. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a different punch in the second dose from the first dose. That's probably pretty good basic science. But that approach is also being used by at least one of the Chinese candidates. You know, Russia's not alone in, in having come up with this, this approach. So they say their prior experience gives them a leg up here. But Russia kind of has a track record of overclaiming its progress and overclaiming the benefit of prior experience. So, you know, it's what, a decade, a decade and a half that we've been hearing that the Russian HIV AIDS vaccine is right around the corner. And that's obviously not a thing. I would argue they had even more of a head start because... In 2007, they were doing this same sort of surface protein approach on HIV. In 2017, they were using a similar approach in terms of developing an Ebola vaccine. And then, of course, the more recent, after um, 2018, again, they started working on this kind of spike block approach with the the vaccine, and they had been working on MERS. That's Cynthia Buckley, a sociology professor at the University of Illinois, who works on global health and social demography in Eurasia. She told me that concerns about Russia's work on a coronavirus vaccine aren't about Russian scientists' professionalism or ingenuity, so much as the political pressure they face today to be first to market with a path to immunity. And so this is, you know, this is a group of scholars who, who, are real microbiologists. They are good scientists. They know what they're doing. But I, I, I also am concerned that some of their colleagues, not in that institute, but in other microbiology institutes like Chumakov, have has argued that the the reason why he is concerned is not because of the intellectual integrity of the researchers involved, but it's much more that the Russian Ministry of Health doesn't really have the same types of communication channels to scientific researchers that you find in many other countries. And indeed, Chumakov was, was quoted evoking the standard Soviet era statement, right? The strictness of Russian laws is compensated for by a lack of necessity in following them. And so his main concern is not necessarily about the intellectual integrity of the researchers. He's concerned about the politicization of the information and the press forward and the lack of clear adherence to stage three trial protocols. And I think he has a really good point. So many have criticized Russia for moving forward too quickly. They're releasing it to the general public without even having started phase three trials yet. Is that as dangerous as it sounds, given that we're, we're you know, months into this global pandemic? And I'm sure that both there are millions of people who would say, don't 
put that anywhere near me. And perhaps millions of people who would say, just shoot it into me, like, let's get this over with. Well, the history of vaccine development is, is amazing. And certainly you can go back into the 1800s and find some really interesting ethical decisions being made on the part of laboratory researchers about testing vaccines, et cetera. But I think right now, m- there is a general consensus in the vaccine community that this is a fairly foolhardy step ahead. And there's three reasons. Okay. So the first reason is, is that the vaccine may not be effective, right? And so you're not really helping. And by pinning your hopes on this, you are diminishing the urgency with which other researchers are pursuing vaccines. The second thing is there might be some bad side effects. Now, there have been 3,176 clinical trials related to COVID that are registered in the International Clinical Trial Database. Russia is responsible for 46 of those. So Russia is only doing a small part of this work. And of those 46, only 34 of them are actual clinical trials. Of those 34, only seven of them have been really focusing on vaccine. So this is not necessarily the culmination of an enormous amount of work done. So that also really raises some questions about efficacy and second thing, which is the, you know, the negative impacts that might have. Now of the 18 people woohoo, that were studied in phase one and the additional 20 in phase two. So we're talking about a total of 38 people here who weren't observed very long. The side effects were minor, at least in the reports. They talk about headaches and rashes at injection sites. Those aren't really deal breakers. But also remember that they had stringent requirements on who was able to participate in this trial. So these were all people with low BMIs, without any sort of illnesses that were uh, between 18 and 60 and were really, really healthy. And so there's a risk there. But the third and biggest risk has to do with the fact that if this fails, after they launch and they've, they're arguing they have requests for a billion doses. Of course, in the same report, they also say they have the capacity to generate half a billion, which is kind of an interesting mismatch there as well. But if you are going to mass produce this and it doesn't work or there's horrible side effects, the impact it could have on vaccines overall could be tremendous. Now, without finger pointing, there have been many allegations against Russia in terms of its participation in anti-vaccine propaganda, most notably about measles in Ukraine. If rushing to market on a vaccine for COVID that really isn't clearly going to be effective, Russia may do more damage to vaccine culture globally than we can imagine. And that's going to have ramifications, not just for COVID, but for things like polio, which are still occurring in Pakistan and Afghanistan, for things like measles, for a whole host of different vaccines. And that, aside from the clear threat of the pandemic, that could have just enormous global impact. And that's really kind of scary. Does Russia have a a kind of vibrant anti-vaxxer community, like say the United States? I know that I've read about 
I've read about small pockets of communities that are HIV dissidents. They don't think that that's a real thing. But what about what about anti-vaxxers? Well, I want to be clear here. I'm a demographer and someone who works on public health. So I, I would never call an anti-vaxxer community vibrant. Right. There are pockets of individuals who are very much in the anti-vaxxer camp. Sometimes this is correlated with religious orientation. Sometimes it is simply small groups of, of young parents heavily dependent on social media who reject expert advice and do not adhere to the science that is overwhelmingly in favor of the need and the safety for vaccines. And that is a huge debate. It is not a massive movement in Russia. It's also not necessarily a massive movement in the United States. The problem is, is that anti-vaxxers tend to be, when they are geographically concentrated, they tend to be a much more substantial public health threat. In some cases as well, there is some sort of telemost, or I guess it would be internetimost, between the United States and Russia. There was a report, I believe in the late, uh, like 2009, outside of Kaluga, where there were four or five families that, that got on the anti-vaccine bandwagon and encouraged others in their very, very small neighborhood to join them. And then, not surprisingly, then the following year, there was a measles outbreak in the school. There have been reports in cities like outside of Novosibirsk. There have been reports in Nizhny Novgorod. Over the past decade, there have been tiny little occurrences, but we're not seeing sustained, systematic, large-scale geographic concentration of this anti-science orientation. Judy Twigg agrees that problems with the Sputnik vaccine could feed the world's anti-vaxxers and set back public health in scary ways. Logistically speaking, though, Russia appears to be very careful about ensuring that its domestic population doesn't feel overlooked. So we worry about the implications of premature release of vaccine on vaccine hesitancy and vaccine denial everywhere around the world, right? The, the anti-vaxxers will have a field day with this and it ends up damaging people's confidence in vaccines in general. So you have people who then won't take not just a COVID vaccine when a good one eventually does become available, but it sours them on all different kinds of vaccines. And then you end up not just with COVID outbreaks, but lots of different kinds of infectious disease outbreaks of false and preventable diseases if things go wrong. In terms of rollout within Russia, having enough doses, how smooth will the prioritization and and the administration be? So that's a question for everywhere, not just for Russia, right? Already, they've been very careful to say that the, you know, they say they're about to ramp up to being ready to produce a couple million doses a month by the end of this year into the spring of 2021. They prioritize health workers, older teachers, other people who who are at risk. They're very careful to say that the Ministry of Health will be the sole provider and administer of the vaccine. So, you know, presumably that simplifies their organizational channels somewhat. And there seems to be pretty broad social agreement that that priority list makes sense. So I don't see a lot of controversy coming up where, you know, some young healthy person is going to complain, I should be getting this before that that doctor or that, you know, 60-year-old teacher does, right? So I don't anticipate any logistics issues there. Would you say that, is this Russia's effort to be a player in uh, global health diplomacy? Is Would you say that they're responding to... 
things that are happening outside of Russia? Like, is that part? Is that is that a response to American withdrawal from the world, or is that more? Is that Putin's seeking to cement his legacy? Like, where would you would you say the influences there? Are, what is it like, endogenous or ex exogenous or? <laughs> Globally, this will be a huge issue, and we're back to why Russia is not making a bigger play internationally. Russia has been really careful so far to say that its domestically produced vaccine will be for domestic consumption. I mean, if you think about what the vaccine landscape globally is going to look like. 12 months from now, 18 months from now, there are going to be, we hope, there are going to be a pretty good handful of, of good viable vaccines out there. And those vaccines aren't all going to be identical. It's probably going to be the case that some of them work best in older people. Some of them work best with different kinds of risk populations or different kinds of groups. And so, it, you know, we're about to enter this stage where we figure out who should get which vaccine and under what circumstances. And then you add to that the idea that it's going to be expensive. And already you have the United States and the United Kingdom making individual deals with AstraZeneca and Pfizer, you know, some of the companies that, that have the vaccines that are the farthest along, to buy up you know, hundreds of millions of doses for their exclusive use. China hasn't said a word yet about how it's going to behave with the handful of very good candidates that, that it has. Russia's desire to use health and global health diplomacy as one relatively small part of its overall drive to reestablish global superpower status. That really predates Donald Trump and the United States' withdrawal from the global health sphere. But then it certainly doesn't hurt Putin's game plan here that Trump has taken us out of WHO and has pulled us out of that global health space in so many other ways, not just during the COVID-19 crisis, but for the several years before that. And so this does give Putin a chance to kind of position Russia in, in a very different way than it's been positioned before. So sure, it seems like this is part of a global politics strategy for Putin, but I, I think there are some other audiences for Putin as well that might even be more important. One is clearly domestic audience, right? Putin could use a win at home. And this, I think, has contributed to some sense that Putin's um, Standing is returning a little bit at home. You know, he kind of had a lame, passive response uh, early on in the in the COVID crisis, and now we see his numbers going up a little bit. You see increasing numbers of Russians in the last set of polling indicate that they're satisfied with the government's handling of the pandemic. They feel like Russia's coming out of it, starting to get back to normal again. And you see what the last poll showed: like more than half of Russians say that they will get the vaccine when it's available, and they prefer the Russian vaccine to an internationally developed and produced vaccine. I mean, that, that's huge for Putin, right? That's a sign, I think, that the gigantic PR campaign that he's rolled out around this vaccine inside Russia has probably had some impact. One of the most suspicious things about the Sputnik vaccine is that its developers have yet to publish any of their data in peer-reviewed scientific journals. I asked Cynthia Buckley about this strange absence of hard data. It's my understanding that the Gamalea Research Institute, they have promised but have not published any of their trial data in any peer-reviewed journals. Is that your understanding as well? I don't think those have been published in peer-reviewed journals. Now, to put it on an even playing ground, we had this kind of debate as well in the development of HIV treatments and AIDS treatments and the work on vaccines too. If you are 
facing a public health pandemic, you want to develop an intervention, you want to make sure that you can get it to treatment and, or get it to patients as quickly as possible. So for the Gamalea, the registration of the project, they only registered this project in June. So they started in June. They said they were going to follow the 38 uh, trial patients for 180 days, yet they said that the investigation was closed as of mid-August, which is not 180 days later. But because they had what they felt were promising results and they had minimal side effects, they were going to rush ahead with this. Allegedly, there are 2,000 doses that, have, that are being sent to Mexico to begin this sort of multinational phase three rollout, but it it really isn't necessarily the kind of controlled, carefully monitored treatment and placebo setup that most governments would want for approval of a vaccine of this nature. And so given the timeline, is it reasonable then that they haven't published any data? Because that strikes me as particularly suspicious that they would share nothing. Is that standard at all for given how quickly they're moving, they also wouldn't have time or they wouldn't have enough data? I, I don't think it's standard. And for phase one, phase two, 38 cases, it's on the small side. But given the global interest in rapidly developing a vaccine, I can't help but think if it was written up in a rigorous format, they would have any problem getting it published very, very quickly. They have yet to do so. So that that does raise a red flag. From the Russian press reports, particularly coming out of the Ministry of Health, their focus is pushing through on something akin to phase three testing as soon as possible and trying to roll it out in a, a fairly international setting for this, not really phase three, but pseudo phase three trial. So we're talking about UAE, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Mexico, and the Philippines have all been mentioned. So it it raises questions. This is not necessarily the standard scientific approach to a phase three trial. And if they're really thinking about being able to roll out everything end of September, which was what the original statement claimed, this becomes highly suspicious. And it's, it's suspicious insofar as, or rather the, the suspicions that it, that it arouses are that they have bad data or that they just don't have any data? Like what, what would you, what's your kind of your best guess? I think they do have data. I think the preliminary data, even though it's, again, focused on very, very small numbers, focused on extremely healthy test subjects. And we know that, you know, COVID risk is, is associated with obesity. It is associated with diabetes and a host of other pre-existing conditions. That's not the those are not the test subjects that this has been initially put to. And so that's a big, big thing to think about moving forward. But these very, very small numbers are interesting and informative simply because it does seem to present motivation to focus on the booster shot approach, which is getting one shot and then another shot afterwards, 21 days after, which is great. And that's helpful because then you don't, 
you know, you don't have to do phase phase two and phase three with the one shot deal. You go with what looks like it's going to be most effective. The flip side being is that if you roll out this alleged trial stage in September, you get the shots, you have to wait three weeks to the booster, but you're going to have a national rollout at the end of that same month. That, again, seems to call into question the timeline of this vaccine's development. And one would hope that you would would provide enough time to make sure on, on this pseudo stage three rollout that you have enough time to observe not just that the shots didn't kill anybody, but what the, you know, even if a week or so or more afterwards to really look at what the efficacy is. Earlier this year in July, intelligence officials in the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain said that state-backed Russian hackers tried to steal coronavirus vaccine research. I asked Professors Buckley and Twig about this. Can you provide some context there? Because I know that my initial response was like, oh, there's, we're like keeping secrets about this stuff. Like, is, is, I thought this is like being shared. Like, aren't, aren't we kind of like pooling our resources on this? But obviously that's not the case. I know there's a lot of, there's like patents at stake and things like that. So what kind of data would, would a spy want to steal? that is not in the peer-reviewed journals already? That's a great question. And it does seem to run counter to this idea that we're facing a global crisis and it's the job of researchers to to share their information and to pool their resources. And in, in an idealized world, and I think for most, the vast majority of researchers, that's exactly what you would be getting. At the same time, there's three big factors at work here not just among researchers, but among countries. And that's about who is going to emerge as a leader in health diplomacy. The U.S. has, in very vibrant fashion, backed away from its role as a leader in health diplomacy with its departure from the World Health Organization. Russia, for quite some time, has been advocating itself as a global health diplomacy leader. So there's that element. There's also the idea of whoever does get this vaccine, whichever country does crack the the puzzle first, this is going to be a huge economic and political gain for them. And so there are huge economic forces at play. And you can see in terms of the list of countries that Russia wants to collaborate with, they are trying to set themselves up among their OPEC neighbors, among the other countries in the BRICS. And interestingly, within Philippines and Mexico, as this, you know, sort of medical technology superpower. And then thirdly, and finally, and this is problematic for states, and it's really problematic for researchers, it's a question of status. And if if we look back again to the HIV, the early stages of the HIV epidemic, unbelievably brilliant people who were great scholars and who really did want to help humanity were really trying to make sure one or the other got the credit for the advances that were taking place. And that was highly problematic. And so while we would like to think everybody's pulling in harness towards the same global success, unfortunately, there are our better angels don't always win out. So sometimes this can be problematic. 
they're not sharing because this is going to be big business when it's released, right? There's a lot of money to be made by the vaccine companies that that manufacture this stuff and and by the developers that that patent it. And, that, and that's a whole other story about vaccine nationalism and what the United States and UK are doing in terms of buying up doses before the vaccines are even released to hoard the supplies for themselves. And I you know, kind of put an asterisk by that topic because it seems to me that that's a political play globally that Russia could be making that it doesn't seem to be making yet. We've heard about a $10 a dose price point for Russia's vaccine, and that's way less than what we're hearing about the likely price points for some of the vaccines that are being developed in the U.S. and China. So Russia could be making significant political points here by offering subsidized or free vaccine to poor countries around the world. And yet I don't hear them saying any of those things yet. So I I have to admit, I don't quite understand what the strategy is there. But in terms of the openness of the data, yeah, I mean, these, you know, these this is all proprietary information at this point in terms of the actual, you know, scientific development and platforms and, and delivery mechanisms that are that are being used. So yeah, when Russia goes out and peaks at information on the vaccines that are being developed by others. There's no evidence that there was anything aggressively malicious about that. In other words, they weren't trying to damage data streams by any other developers. So my guess, and this is true of a whole lot of tech espionage, it's true of a lot of the tech espionage that the Soviet Union engaged in back during the Cold War, is that, you know, sure, you want to steal ideas, but a lot of what you get by taking a look at what someone else is doing is just verification of what works and what doesn't work so that you save yourself a lot of wasted time and effort by going down roads that have been proven not to be viable. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we talked to social scientists Judith Twigg and Cynthia Buckley about Russia's coronavirus vaccine, Sputnik V or 5 and discussed its safety, research background, and political context. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. <laughs> <laughs>